Hi, everyone. Uh, Saturday, February 18th. Good to be with all of you again. Uh, I know it's a holiday weekend, so maybe some folks have other things to do, but others can be sure to listen to the replay. Um, we've got a great room today. Uh, my longtime friend Albert Saporta is with us, one of the most astute observers of markets globally that it's been my pleasure to know. Albert, welcome. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Good to be with you. Hi, George. Excellent, How are you doing? excellent, excellent. Um, so um, before we get moving here, uh, as is our custom, I'd like to just review this date in history. Uh, I get a little education out of this. Hopefully you do as well. So in chronological order, I didn't actually know this. It's kind of cool. In uh, 1878, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. Who knew? 1878. In 1930, Pluto was discovered by Clyde Tombaugh. That's in 1924, using a 13-inch telescope at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. Clyde had um, no formal training uh, in astronomy. Interesting. And then lastly, one of the... Uh, less glorious days of um, the United States. In 1942, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order allowing the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. That was a dark chapter in American history. At any rate, to the uh, matter at hand, Albert, great to uh, see you again. It's been, I looked up, I think it was, uh, I don't know, seven, eight months ago that we were last together in one of these spaces. Uh, the exact date uh, escapes me. So before we get started, sorry, go ahead, Albert. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I'm listening. Yeah, no, no, no worries, no worries. Um, and so um, before we get started, Albert, it might be useful just to kick it off by just explaining um, the other proprietor of AMIR research. It's been around for uh, was it twenty some odd years. Just explain what it is you do, uh, and then we can get into. Um, your remarks for today. I will. Albert has a series of uh, charts that he wishes to speak from. This will not be death by PowerPoint, but it'll help uh, inform his uh, discussion. So, Albert, um, why don't you start off by um, explaining what it is exactly you do, and from there you can get into your presentation. In the meantime, I will post your charts to the nest. So, take it away, Albert. Uh, thanks, George. Um, right. Well, uh, AMNR was uh, I founded AMNR in, in uh, 1995. And um, between 95 and 2006, uh, I was running a, a hedge fund group uh, out of uh, Geneva, uh, mainly investing in, uh, in global arbitrage opportunities, uh, whether um, it was risk arbitrage or arbitrage of holding company stru uh, structures and stubs, which is kind of uh, my, my long, long time uh, specialty. And, um, and, and doing pair trading. I mean, uh, basically pretty, pretty low volatility type, type trade. And the older I was getting, the, the more, uh, the, more uh, um, uh, the more risk uh, I would uh, allow myself to, uh, to take. And um, in 2006, I, uh, looking at the overvaluation of um, you know, markets at the time, I actually sold my, uh, my hedge fund group uh, and, uh, and I retired. Uh, for a number of years, I, um, I I was living in Brazil, and then uh, I was watching the uh, the financial crisis unfold from uh, from the beaches of uh, of Rio. And then I came back 
to the markets in 2011, 12. Um, and um, at that time, rather than, uh, than start up a new, uh, a new hedge fund, I restarted the research firm. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's what um, I'm doing right now. And um, we're talking uh, to about 30 of some of the largest hedge funds. Uh, advising them on on you know the strategies that have been uh, that have been covering for uh, for years, and um, including now uh, because I'm grown up, uh, more macro stuff, more directional, uh, more directional stuff, um, and so our clients are in uh, mainly in the US, uh, some in uh, some in the UK, some large funds in the UK, uh, in Brazil and in uh, in Hong Kong. Um, so that's uh, that's what we do. Uh, so we talk to to these hedge funds, uh, some pension funds, um, a number of uh, high net worth um, family offices, and um, and that's it. We're based in uh, in uh, Geneva, and um, I look I look at everything that moves. Uh, I guess um, that's certainly something that I have in common with uh, with George, um, and uh, yeah. So that's uh, in a nutshell what uh, what we're doing. Terrific. So, Albert, uh, I posted um, the slides to the nest that you provided to me. I think there's seven or eight. And uh, again, this won't be death by PowerPoint, but um, why don't you just, uh, you know, have a go at it for, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes. Uh, yeah. Maybe highlight the key points, your beliefs about markets and where you see risks and opportunities. Right. Okay. So, um, I mean, the first thing is, uh, you know, without going into uh, being or whatever, one of the one of the main things that drive markets uh, in the in service since uh, since uh, March between. Hey, Albert, uh, Albert, your inter- your your connection is getting a little bit sketchy. I don't know what's going on. Right. Here. You were you were, you were fine until about a minute ago, and then it started getting okay. a little weird. What about now? Go ahead. I'll tell you if it doesn't work. Keep going. Right. Okay. So, so the, I mean, the relationship between uh, equities and bonds have been uh, have been driving markets, and that's that's not an uh, unusual, you know, in an inflationary world and in a world where you know the Fed is uh, aggressively uh, raising rates, and so the markets have been equity markets have been have been uh, moving in steps with uh, with the bond market, and one of the most um, consistent indicator, uh, which has been really working, like uh, like a Swiss a Swiss clock. Has been the the uh, the way the Nasdaq has been moving with the uh, the thirty year bond, and you know obviously I mean this is no I mean it shouldn't be any mystery in the sense that the uh, um, you know what's driving valuation and uh, and valuation expansion and 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 uh, contraction is the you know the relationship between you know these discounted cash flow that uh, you know that you would see in, typically in tech stocks and interest rates, and obviously. The lower the interest rates, the, the you know the more valuable you know would be companies, even if they have zero earnings. But as soon as interest rates starts you know starts to go up, uh, then the relationship between equities and bonds, and especially you know tech equities and bonds, uh, becomes very critical. <clears throat> Through so on the first chart, you can see the uh, you know the the chart between between QQQ and TLT. So these are the two ETFs for for the Nasdaq and the thirty year. Uh, the 30-year um, um, treasuries, and uh, and you know the green line uh, at the bottom of that chart represents the relative performance of 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 uh, the Nasdaq versus the 30-year. So, so 
you know, each time the uh, the Nasdaq has been um, overshooting uh, bonds, the 30-year, th- this was pretty much, you know, a good time to, uh, you know, to uh, to go short the Nasdaq. And if you wanted to do, do it on a hedge basis, it was a pretty good time to, uh, you know, to go short the Nasdaq and go long um, the 30-year. And th- this has been an incredible incredibly uh, consistent trade, uh, you know, basically for the last, uh, you know, one year plus. And so what's happened in the last few months <coughs> is, is that, um, you know, toward, toward, the end of, uh, toward the end of last year, uh, the, uh, you know, the NASDAQ came back into sync with, uh, with bonds, you know, which kind of explains why, you know, we, why we had a rally. Uh, at the beginning of the year, the thing is that in this rally, uh, the Nasdaq has been uh, has been overshooting again. Um, the Nasdaq has been overshooting again the um, you know the the bond market, and so we are back to the same um, level of overvaluation in terms of um, you know uh, in terms of stocks relative to bonds. If we go on the on the next chart, the second chart, uh, it kind of shows the same. It shows the same thing. Uh, but you know, zooming up on the last uh, the last four months, and even you know, even in you know, in these last four months, you can see these uh, these arrows which are pointing up and down. Uh, basically, when the Nasdaq was going up and and bonds were going down, um, you know, you could be sure that they would converge. So they converge in, in uh, you know in September. They converge again, you know, toward the end of uh, of last year. Then you know throughout January and the beginning of February they they sort of um, uh, moved stepped in steps and then since mid February uh, the the bond market has been going down in prices yields up and and the Nasdaq has kept going up and that that is what creating uh, that is what creating you know what I think is the current uh, opportunity in terms of uh, you know of being short again of course <coughs> the way you know the way this could um, not work if you are outright short is if uh, if the bond market starts to go up again uh, but if we look at what's been happening in the last um, you know in the last year plus uh, every time we've had that kind of dislocation the the dislocation has been worked out by you know the nasdaq meeting the bond market on the downside okay so that's um, uh, that's point number 1 uh point number 2 is uh, uh, you know is uh, shown on the third uh, on the on the third chart, which looks at the VIX uh, versus um, versus the high yield spread, and uh, again these are these are two and uh, you know you've got a few years there um, five years, but actually you can look at it over ten years and twenty years and it's kind of the same thing. Basically, the VIX uh, zooms up when you know credit spreads uh, are blowing up, uh, and vice versa, and so. What we see uh, in, in that chart is that uh, we, we do have a dislocation where the VIX has been coming down very significantly uh, in, the last, uh, in the last two, three months. Uh, whereas the credit spreads, I mean, they did come down a bit as, as well, but they still remain uh, quite elevated, um, you know, uh, compared to recent his- history. Um, and obviously, if we, you know, if um, economic conditions get worse, uh, you know that these credit spreads have the potential of uh, zooming up again. So, you know what I'm what I'm saying here is that I mean, first of all, there's a disconnection between you know what the equity market participants and what the uh, the bond market part. Actually, it's the same disconnection as uh, as the one I've just talked about before. There is a disconnection between 
you know what the uh, the bond market uh, people think and what the equity market people thinks and and I can't remember who said that but you know somebody said you know the bond market is always right um, and so I would suggest you know that the uh, that the um, you know the potential for the VIX to uh, you know to go up significantly from the current level is is uh, pretty high and so that ties in you know with uh, with the charts before um, and so uh, you know I, I kind of believe we are at minima we we are you know um, on the verge of uh, you know of, of a let's let you know let let's say you know, toward a retest of the lows um, at the very least uh, on the equity. Hey, hey, say, say, Albert, on this last point, I'm no expert in volatility. Um, some people are saying the VIX has kind of lost its significance for all kinds of reasons. And um, I don't know what to make of that. Do you have any observations about whether the VIX Look, uh, has... You know, I, I don't know whether it's, uh, you know, it's lost significant and significance. I mean, you know, there are lots of people that are, you know, buying options, you know, for hedging and for this and for that. But I mean, you know, what's for sure is that when markets are falling and falling fast, the VIX goes up and markets are, you know, getting, uh, are, are going up in a sustained ma- manner, the, you know, the, the VIX is going down. And so, you know, it remains... I mean, uh, two things. It remains, first of all, an, an indicator as to you know uh, whether people are complacent or not, and and they are right now, whether they are in a panic mode, which is uh, you know which is uh, uh, you know which is definitely not um, you know not the case uh, right now. Um, so you know, I think it's uh, you know whatever goes in, in the background of uh, you know of uh, the way the the VIX is being measured, uh, it remains. You know, I think that you know that um, very useful indicator, which you, which you can trade as well, by the way, because there are there are futures um, on the VIX. Um, so okay, all right. So yeah. you know, and, and and the charts, you know, the charts, you know, do show. I mean, you know, this this connection between you know between the the um, uh, between the uh, you know credit spreads and and um, and the VIX and and. You know, obviously, you know when 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 you do get into uh, periods of stress, uh, you know, like the spike that you see on the chart is uh, is uh, COVID, uh, but you could look at uh, you know all periods of of stress, and you would see the same thing where credit spreads and the and the VIX, you know, go hand in hand in hand, and and each time you do have dislocation, they actually you know they actually uh, come back together. So, um, and again. Most of the time, it is the uh, credit spread, uh, you know, which is uh, which tends to be right, and so you know the VIX uh, meets uh, you know credit spread rather than the other way around. Makes sense. Okay, let's move on to the next slide. Okay, so so you know to 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 make it uh, you know to make it short, you know what I've just said is that I've I've shown you know I've shown basically two two fairly to understand. You know indicators that are showing that you know that equities are out of steps with with bonds, and when that's been the case, uh, um, you know at least in the uh, in the recent past, meaning you know the the last twelve, you know fourteen months, uh, that's that's been uh, that's been you know a time, you know to 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 be short, okay. And now you know uh, to to bring the sort of long term perspective as to um, you know as to uh, in terms of valuations and so on. You know, it's not like markets are. You know, markets are are cheap in 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 any uh, shape or form. Uh, after the um, you know after the last year's um, you know correction, 
Um, so the, uh, I mean, markets are actually, you know, still extremely expensive. So if we look at the, uh, the next chart, uh, the next chart is looking at uh, long-term valuation since, uh, I think, 1947. They come from uh, John Hussman, uh, who puts up great, uh, you know, great, uh, very long-term charts uh, on a whole bunch of things. But, I mean, this one is, uh, is, um, is self-explanatory. Uh, it it shows uh, market cap versus uh, gross value added, which is <clears throat> basically one step below, uh, you know, the price to sales ratio in a way. Um, and so what that chart is showing is that, okay, you know, there's been some kind of evaluation adjustment in the last, uh, you know, in the last 12 months. But, you know, we're still extremely expensive, you know, by historical, uh, you know, on, on by historical measures. I mean, the the, the market is basically... You know, on on that measure, but actually, if you look at price to sales ratio and and uh, price to book ratios, you know these kinds of um, these kind of uh, of ratios, um, you, you will see that the market is is you know as expensive as it was at the top of two thousand and seven, and and you know almost as expensive as it was at the top of two thousand two thousand and one, uh, and significant significantly more expensive than any other period, of, you know, uh, before. So, you know, we're still looking at a market which is uh, massively overvalued, despite the fact that there was, you know, some kind of evaluation adjustment last year. Um, the next chart, uh, and, and and now, you know, I, I'll show the, you know, the, the sort of uh, main problems uh, for the market. Uh, the next chart is is showing, you know, EP uh, that EPS and margins have uh, have overshot. Um, you know, we're looking at um, on these charts at um, operating margins. Um, uh, th these are the uh, the green and yellow, uh, the green and red lines, and then the the um, uh, the uh, green line is showing uh, is showing the sort of average long term profit margin, which is eight and a half percent. So we can see that there's been a very significant overshoot uh, in the last uh, basically in the last two years in terms of uh, in terms of uh, operating margins, in terms of profit margins, and this is what I call the uh, the, the magic. Uh, COVID recovery, um, you know, there was this uh, COVID crisis where um, where ec economies went into an instant recession and then instant recovery, and and you know companies made you know a fortune out of that. They, they were able to not only maintain the margin. I mean, they were not only able to regain their margins to re uh, to uh, you know keep them, but actually profit margins just uh, you know went through the roof uh, during this period of time. The thing is. You know, if we go to the next chart, and actually, uh, I mean, even on that chart, it's uh, it's uh, kind of uh, obvious. But if we go to the next chart, the next chart is showing uh, the earnings per share for the S&P and, and GDP, um, I mean, the nominal GDP for the U.S. Uh, economy. And, and basically, EPS are, are uh, sort of, um, you know, going along with uh, nominal GDP. And that, you know, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you know, why would EPS... Over the very long term, grow at a faster rate than uh, you know than the GDP, which actually represents you know the the globality of the uh, U.S. economy. Um, you know what you can observe is that actually there was a long period of uh, you know sort of uh, undershooting uh, during the 70s and early 80s, you know, which were basically the um, the inflationary um, time. So, in other words, EPS was you know were not keeping track with uh, with nominal nominal GDP. And then you know, since the the since the uh, mid 80s, and then 
uh, even more so, basically, APS, you know, started to uh, grow, grow much faster than uh, nominal GDP. But you can see that, uh, that you know, every, every um, you know, so often, you know, there would be periods of uh, when, you know, when uh, GDP would come back to, uh, uh, sorry, where, when EPS would come back to, uh, to nominal GDP. So, you know, the overshoot would be working themselves over time, except uh, basically since, you know, since this COVID crisis where, you, you know, you can see on the chart, uh, you know, this huge gap between EPS and nominal GDP. Uh, and the next chart is showing the same thing, but basically since the 80s. Uh, you know, which is like the beginning of the bull market. Um, you know, EPS have been tracking, you know, very, very closely nominal GDP during this period of time. Um, they did overshot, uh, overshoot in 2000, and this was worked out. Um, they overshot even more so, you know, before the financial crisis, but this was worked out as well, um, you know, in 2000, you know, uh, nine and 2010. And then, and then you see, you know, this uh, this uh, very abnormal uh, situation where, uh, you know, basically the uh, the uh, the way EPS have expanded uh, relative to nominal GDPs is uh, unprecedented. And so, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, these things, uh, you know, why not, you know, why not get these things, you know, continue forever? Uh, but that's, you know, that's not, you, you know, that's not the way it's been working. Uh, and I, you know, I don't see any reason why. Uh, you know, there should be a disconnection long term between, you know, between uh, EPS and nominal GDP. So my expectation, you know, without being, let's say, without being an analyst, whether macro or micro, but my expectation is that, you know, EPS are going to get crushed. Um, you know, we're not talking about uh, EPS going down 5% or, you know, or I think the, the consensus estimate is, uh, you know, EPS going down something like i don't know between 2 and 4% in 2023 and then and then you know most i mean and then the consensus for 2024 is again plus 9% and 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 you know and again 9% in 2025 so basically you know the analysts are are expecting this uh, you know this overshoot to um, you know to continue and it's you know it's it's never happened um you know i think we're looking at a at a huge um, downturn in in EPS. Um, if we go to the next uh, the next chart, uh, we see again uh, the white line is EPS, the orange line is uh, operating margins, and obviously what makes you know EPS go down is a fall in the operating margin, which has which has already started. Um, <clears throat> the peak in operating margin was in February last year, uh, and that was sixteen percent. Uh, the operating margins now around 14.5%. Uh, again, analysts are, are projecting these margins to remain relatively stable from here and then to expand again you know, into next year. Um, I think this is, uh, again, for the same reason, extremely unlikely. And, um, you know, usually if we look at, you know, what's been happening in the last, uh, in the last decades is that the, uh, you know, the, 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 the usual, the usual, uh, um, you know, back to the back to the mean in terms of margins is is going back to uh, you know low, you know low double digit, or high single digit margins. You know, sort of around nine, eight to you know eight to twelve percent margin. So we are at you know we were at sixteen, uh, we are now at fourteen and a half. I mean, you know, if margins were going down to um, you know to uh, to twelve or ten, you know that would be you know would have a very very significant 
uh, impact on on EPS. Yeah, Albert, isn't this a key battleground here? Because um, you know, earnings have uh, there's a big bid ask spread between um, the bears and the bulls on earnings, as you just pointed out. Um, the earnings are down. Uh, earnings growth has slipped to a few, slipped a few percent, and the people are expecting it to resume in twenty four, twenty five, as opposed to, you know, some of the more influential thinkers in the street um, think uh, just to take the S and P as a proxy that you're looking at a much bigger decline. You know, S and P earnings maybe one eighty, one ninety, two hundred, something like that. I mean, we had we had uh, Michael uh, Harnett in the room um, uh, a couple weeks ago, and he made the case, and he's not alone, and so. There seems to be. This is really the, where the battle is being fought. I mean, the, the the bears think that there's going to be you know bi, you know recession and the big earnings decline. That's what history would argue. Uh, the bulls are saying otherwise. But it sounds like you're coming out in the bears camp. If I understand you correctly, uh, you understood me uh, very correctly. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Um, yeah, that's for sure. So you know the, the I mean the EPS for the for the S and P right now is around two hundred and twenty two hundred and twenty three. I think. Okay. And and again, you know, if we look at the next chart, which you know, which looks at EPS, uh, both trailing and and uh, and uh, forward, um, so we are around 220. Um, you know, consensus estimate again is you know sort of uh, pretty flat to you know slightly down in 223 and then back up 10 percent uh, in 224. Um, if we go back to you know if we if we you know, go back toward trend. I'm not even talking going back to trend. If we go back toward trend, you know, you can make a case that EPS is not going to be like 225 or 230. Uh, it's it's going to be more like 185. Okay, I think that would be that would be a, a fairly conservative EPS forecast in a gloomy, you know, uh, given you know, let's say, given my gloomy view. Okay, and if you ascribe you know, sort of mid-range bear market bottom valuation, you know, like 12 times. Um, and again, 12 times is, is a, you know, is, is pretty, you know, pretty bullish, you know, for, for a, a sort of low cycle, uh, you know, uh, let's say a secular low cycle in terms of valuation. I mean, I think secular low cycle valuations are more like eight, you know, eight times earnings. But let's assume 12 times, 185 you know, dollars EPS, you know, that yields an S&P of, um, you know, 2,220. Okay, so <clears throat> this is, you know, this is, I think, where we could, you know, very easily you know, go, in, you know, in, uh, in uh, you know, in, in um, until until we get to the end of, uh, of this bear market phase. Okay. That's just a huge... I mean, again, this is where the battlegrounds are being fought. I mean, it, it's if, if earnings, well, even if earnings one eighty five. I mean, with the market at uh, where are we forty one hundred, whatever. I mean, you're talking what twenty two times earnings or something like that. I mean, that's just I don't know. Um, it, it seems a bit a bit of a disconnect. But um, so far, the market's not going where not going where you are. I frankly, I've been surprised how well earnings have held up and how mark how well the market's held up, but. Takes two to make a market, um, sure, so yeah. fair enough. All right, let's go on. Let's finish up here on the slide so we can get a discussion. Okay, so the, the next slide. I mean, everybody knows, uh, you know, the yield curve is inverted, and and uh, and um, you know that's uh, and, and then people tell you, you know, like this is the most the most uh, um, I would say the 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 most uh, 
well-known, you know, sort of recession, you know, like everybody's expecting a recession. And, and, and some of the argument is, you know, if, if everybody knows there's a recession because the yield curve is inverted, um, you know, that's already discounted in the price. I mean, so first of all, actually, you know, people were having the same discussion, uh, I remember very clearly in 2007, you know, when the yield curve was, was inverted and no one, you know, I mean, people were poo-pooing the, you know, the, the possibility of a recession. The, you know, what I'm saying, you know, is that the, uh, obviously, you know, things always look the, the best and the greatest and the most exciting, you know, just before uh, the recession sets in. And that's, you know, that's by definition. So, you know, certainly what you, what the, the economic condition that you see today, um, you know, have nothing to do what, with what, you know, they should, they, they should, uh, you know, become given where the yield curve uh, is, uh, is uh, setting right now. And so, you know, the, I think we have two, two pretty strong indicators that uh, the recession, the coming recession is a foregone conclusion. One is the yield curve, um, and I would not dismiss it uh, because it's, all, it, it's always worked. Um, and it's very easy to understand why it's it's uh, it's always working. Is that basically the yield curve gets inverted because the uh, you know uh, the Fed is raising rates, um, you know at, at a much faster clip uh, than the bond market. You know at the long end, and the, you know the the long end doesn't go up as much as uh, as the short end because eventually they, they the the bond market expects you know that uh, there will be a recession because of you know because of the rise in interest rates. And so you know what what's been happening and what's basically almost been happening is that the the fed is raising rates you know until we get into a recession so that that's why you know this yield curve inversion and then when it becomes you know when it goes from inversion to uh, positively sloped um you know that's always been a precursor to um, i mean the inversion has always been a precursor to to the recession and the the recession you know comes in when the yield curves uh, flattens and gets positive again it's always been like that so, um, again, you know, this time could be different, uh, but until proven, you know, wrong, um, you know, I would stick with my view that basically the yield curve inversion and, and the EPS, you know, way out of, uh, way out of sync with uh, nominal GDP, you know, this huge dislocation, you know, both of these things are pointing out, uh, you know, to a, a recession. Why it's going to come, you know, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, I have an idea. I mean, uh, you know, interest rates have gone up from zero to, uh, you know, to five. And that's uh, that's an enormous economic shock. And in fact, you know, this is the you know, biggest uh, rise in interest rates. And there's never been, you know, uh, such a big uh, tightening without, you know, some sort of an economic shock. So, you know, I would argue that, you know, the people that think that this is going to be, uh, this is not going to, to happen. I think, you know, these people are sort of uh, asleep at the wheel, really. All right. So. Uh, then the last chart is um, is actually, I mean, you know, to counter some of the, the bullish arguments, um, you know, the main bullish argument uh, is that, you know, the, the Fed is almost down down with uh, the tightening. So, you know, we, the, the market is going to anticipate, is starting to anticipate the Fed pivot, uh, you know, and that the Fed will start, um, um, will stop raising rates and, you know, will go in reverse. The thing is, you know, on this chart, you see that, uh, um, you know, in all the, you know, after all the uh, sort of uh, major tightening uh, periods, um, the, the market actually, you know, went up into the tightening and actually started to crash once the tightening was over and once 
the Fed was actually starting to, um, you know, to, um, uh, to cut interest rates. I think this is, you know, maybe the, the, the most interesting, you know, could be the most interesting chart. And so what you usually get in, you know, in, in bull market phase, you know, in bull market phase is that, you know, actually, as you know, the Fed, the Fed raises interest rates because you have inflationary pressure uh, and because the economy is, uh, is, uh, is uh, overheating. And and because the economy is overheating, you know you you got great economic conditions, uh, in, unemployment is low, and so on. And people speculate, okay? They you know they don't see further than that. Um, you know everything looks good. You know they buy stocks and so on. The Fed raises rates. Um, you know people say you know don't fight the Fed, but actually the markets fight the equity market fights the Fed all the time. And so it gets to the point where there is a you know very significant dislocation between uh, between equities and bonds. And then the market, you know, the market crashes uh, and it crashes because the recession comes um, and the recession comes because the Fed has been raising rates, you know, until the recession is coming. And so that's why, you know, the market tends to peak at the time when the Fed is done with raising rates and starts to, um, you know, to cut rates. So, you know, the story of this Fed pivot and, and being bullish because the Fed is, you know, is going to to um, to to cut rates. Um, uh, you know, again, you know, this is uh, certainly not what's been happening, you know, in in the last uh, in the last f- uh, fifty years, actually. Um, and so I will I will uh, I will leave it here, you yes. know, in terms of uh, in terms of the comments, and um, and you know, uh, I'm open for your questions. That's terrific, Albert. Uh, and I urge everyone uh, get some questions going here. Anyone who's got a question or comment for Albert, uh, please weigh in. Um, the more, the merrier. Uh, you've given us a lot to chew on here, Albert. I love love your charts. I apologize for too many, but um, they're they're very helpful in, in highlighting the points, hammering the points home that you're that you're trying to make. Um, so I guess you know if I just if I just distill or break down what you said, I mean you've got. Um, Interest rates have, have, have gone up considerably. Uh, equities have gone the other way. So it's a disconnect. Just trying to summarize what you've said here. Um, you've got a disconnect between the rise in interest rates and the fact that equities have rallied. So equities are expensive relative to bonds. And at the same time, um, you think uh, profit margins uh, are very elevated and going to go down. So, um, you know, whatever multiple you see, so you've, got, you've got elevated multiples on elevated earnings. And Unambiguously, that leads to much lower market. Uh, is that more or less um, what, what you're saying? I, I yeah, absolutely. yeah, 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 absolutely. Ter- yeah. Terrific. So, um, try arguing against yourself. Let's say you're wrong. Um, what? Because markets have a way of um, confounding everyone. They certainly confounded me the last couple of months. That's for sure. Um, I haven't covered myself in glory, but like, is it? Do you question whether you're right, or did you just question what the time frame? In which it in which it may take to play out. I mean, are you you've got history on your side? It would seem, but what, what gives you pause, or when you try to argue with yourself, when you have when you have some self doubt, what, what what is it really a question of timing from your standpoint? I mean, it can it, can, it, it you know it's, it's I mean it it can always be the timing, but actually the, the you know the if, if if you look at this uh, you know again this chart you know Nasdaq versus TLT and and actually it could be the the S and P or, or the Russell. I mean, it's been such a you know such a great indicator that um, you know I actually think uh, I I I think from this point on, the the um, you know it's going to be very very difficult for equity markets to go up if if the bond market 
you know doesn't go up if yields uh, you know don't 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 go don't go up so what can be wrong what could go wrong you know uh, you could get a massive you know rally you know in the bond market because uh, i don't know the you know inflation all of a sudden is uh, you know is um, is is much lower or 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 you know the recession is actually you know coming and and people anticipate you know more aggressive cutting by the fed but you know i've just shown that usually when that happens you know you do get the recession and then and then you know markets go down anyway um so you know i think you know to come back to the big picture uh, george and uh, you know we've talked about that before um you know i think we are in a in a very big asset liquidation phase uh, which started in, uh, you know, it didn't start last year. It actually started in, in February 2021, uh, you know, when people started to sell, you know, all the shitty stocks, all the uh, all the super speculative stocks and so on. Uh, and then, you know, and then it started to hit the, uh, you know, the very large cap stocks and so on. And and we are in this phase where, you know, we're having, you know, and during this, these periods of time, you have up and downs. And, uh, you know, we just had a, an up period. And, um and I think we'll resume, you know, fairly, fairly, fairly soon, you know, uh, uh, a period of, uh, you know, of of markets going down. And then, you know, whether the market falls off, you know, like 30 percent, like uh, like I think it will, whether it's just 5 percent and we go down to the lows of, uh, you know, of the end of the year. And then and then we'll, we'll rally again. You know, everything is a moving target. It depends on a lot of things. Uh, but I think we are still in this um uh, you know, we're still in this asset liquidation phase, and and frankly, you know, the sentiment when I mean, you know, it's still party time. Um, uh, you know, people are still not disgusted by uh, you know by holding stocks. So you know, I kind of think that uh, there's still a lot of downside uh, ahead. I mean, right now people are, are switching. You know, they they've switched from from tech to you know retail or or to um, you know cyclical or financials and so on. But you know, in an asset liquidation phase. You know, everything goes down. Right. Okay. So let's get the questions going here. I've got plenty more questions, but I'd like uh, to recognize uh, our friend Abe. Abe, good to see you. Uh, you have a question for Albert? Go for it. Uh, I do. Thanks, George, for hosting. As always, great spaces. Albert, um, what's your view on the uh, consumer balance sheets, including uh, corporate balance sheets? Um, there's, there's definitely a bull narrative out there. Uh, that can't be ignored. Uh, no one should ignore any 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 view um, that uh, um, consumer balance sheets or uh, retail balance sheets are actually quite good. And as a consequence, uh, even if we do get uh, higher rates for longer, um, that will um, that will delay uh, the potentiality of a of a recession it, should it come. Um, into perhaps next year. And that may also change the dynamics of where the Fed is at, because they clearly will now have, um, you know, a lot more time with more data uh, in order to assess uh, their own monetary policy moving forward. And, you know, we may end up with a, um, a rosier picture than perhaps anticipated. Thank you. Okay, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the numbers. Um, you know, I haven't seen the charts. Um, you know, in terms of uh, consumer balance sheet leverage and so on. But uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, a large part of you know the, uh, you know, these balance sheets and and the way you know consumer are looking, you know, wealthy, if you will, is you know, is because one, 
uh, of equity values and two of real estate values. Um, so if you take these two things, you know, if you mark these two things, if you mark them down to market and, you know, let's say, again, you know, that's another thing, you know, I haven't talked about, but, you know, how, how can real estates remain elevated in a world where, you know, you've gone from mortgages at 1% and then, you know, they, they are at six and a half or something like that. So, you know, the value, you know, the valuation mark to market of, you know, people's houses and and you know maybe portfolio could be a lot lower than than you know what the what the numbers suggest and so you know I'm not sure that you know uh, you know the consumer is is that much um, you know healthier than you know at previous peaks before you know asset peaks. So on that point, Abe, I want to ask you. Uh, yeah. And Albert, you wouldn't know. Abe is uh, in Toronto, over the epicenter of one of the biggest real estate bubbles in the world, and. Abe, you always have interesting insights about Canadian real estate. Can you just update us on what's going on in your part of the world with respect to real estate? Yeah. So, so what we're seeing is, you know, without without material volumes, you have uh, no possibility for price discovery. So, this notion that we've seen a bottom perhaps is is rather nonsensical because we don't we don't have enough um, uh, volume to really determine that. So we're sitting in a situation right now where we have no volume um, from price from peak to trough on a national average. We're down 13 percent. Um, some um, some cities outside of the epicenters like Toronto, Vancouver are down uh, as high as 35 um, percent. The um, the mortgage market here, very, very different than what you guys have south of the border. Uh, we have five-year mortgages. There's no such thing as a 30-year. So we've got a lot more exposure to, on the short end of the curve, uh, and that's starting to um, uh, to wreak some havoc. So there are about 36% of our total mortgages are variable. So they're all, you know, um, they're all dealing with uh, mortgages that are north of 6%. Uh, and these were these were guys that a year ago were were probably in the low twos. Um, and uh, we also have runoff on the fixed side. Uh, which means that at any given point in time, you're likely going to have a variable camp north of 50%, which is a huge problem because on a historical basis, you're looking at a cohort um, that was used to, you know, zero interest rate policy where rates were anemic, very, very low. Uh, the only thing saving this market um, from, from my lens, and, and I've been in this market since I think 1986, um, I can tell you is we have no no volume, zero volume, and the rental market is incredibly tight um, amidst uh, a government that is driving immigration policy literally through the roof. So there's nowhere to go, nowhere to go, and there's no substitution. So when you have zero substitution, uh, people don't move, and uh, cost of moving is, is now also cost prohibitive. So we're kind of stuck. So what's happening is is really simple you have the underbelly of the real estate market that is reeling because they can't afford six six and a half percent um uh, rates of interest especially those that bought last five years and highly levered um got also inflationary pressures that's also ripping and so what's happening because they can't move they're forced to stay but pretty soon at the rate that things are going, if this stays in a prolonged state, uh, there's going to be a lot of Canadians eating craft dinner uh, because you may have excess savings, 
Um, and that is true, by the way. Um, the problem here is that uh, you can't write off your mortgage, your interest, ex- um, off, your, sorry, the, the interest component um, against any income. Um, so there's other dynamics here. And, and the market is highly, highly levered. So, so really what you're seeing is, a, is an underbelly that is starting to uh, feel the pain. Um, and the hope here, and I'll just stop, the hope is that somehow there's going to be a, a magical pivot um, and, uh, and that's going to bring the party back all over again. And, you know, we can flip uh, condos like hamburgers uh, and cheeseburgers here because that's basically what's been going on. Um, but that's, that's beginning to fade as well as more and more Canadians wake up to the reality that we're not a reserve currency and the only central bank that matters is the Federal Reserve, which is essentially the Eccles building. That's all that really matters. Thanks, um, th- th- so thanks for it. that, Abe. Yeah. I'd love for you to come on later, not right now, but hang around, yeah. please, because uh, I want to draw on your expertise, what you're seeing going on in the commodity markets and in Europe. So j- j- just stay there. Let's work some others into the conversation. Uh, Bobby, good to see you. Uh, please unmute yourself. Do you have a, a question for Billy? I'll be the floor yeah, thanks. Um, Al, um, just a quick question. So in terms of disinflation, do you believe that they're going to be able to avoid deflation? Or um, you think we're just going to see this dif- disinflation uh, just bottom out uh, just in time before we go into deflation? And then the second question is, is your base case um EPS of 185 at 12 times, or was that just the uh, the, the multiple you, you were given conservatively to, to this to this room? Thanks. All uh, right. So on on disinflation or deflation, um, I mean, uh, I, I don't think we are in this kind of environment at all. So uh, I'd be very very uh, very surprised. Uh, you know, if we if we ever get to uh, you know to uh, to the two percent target that the Fed the Fed has, and and the reasons are uh, are uh, sort of um, crazy to pinpoint. One is, I mean, they they all kind of uh, very macro stuff. But the uh, you know you you have this uh, war in Ukraine, um, and it, and it is a uh, you know it is a kind of uh, world war. Uh, you know, basically Europe and and the US are fighting the russians uh you know uh using the you know the ukrainians as uh, as proxy but you know this is this is causing basically you know all of the european and 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 uh, us and australia and japan and and korea and and so on um you know to increase very very significantly the uh, their defense budgets and you know we haven't seen you know the end of that you know at all um, you know, for example, Germany, which had uh, almost zero uh, defense budget, is you know is uh, increasing that by uh, you know multiples of like you know ten times or twenty times. Um, so there is, and that's that's very inflationary. And war times are are inflationary periods. Uh, then you have you know global warming, warming, you know, which which is also going to cause government to spend you know zillions of uh, of dollars. Um, and that's you know again inflationary and 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 uh, you know the replacement of uh, of fossil fuels and and uh, you know the uh, the uh, the change you know the way we produce things um, I mean all these things um, I mean basically global warming again that's these are you know uh, investments which you know which are going to be inflationary as well then we have deglobalization which uh, 
you know, obviously when you manufacture everything in China and you change that from China to, uh, you know, to uh, even Turkey or Mexico or, you know, or, or back home in the U.S. or in Europe, that's extremely inflationary as well. Uh, then you have demographics, which are not favorable uh, in most economies, uh, you know, pretty much any, uh, everywhere. And that's, again, you know, uh, very inflationary. So, you know, just looking at these three, four, uh, these four, uh, you know, big factors, um, you know, I don't see what's, you know, how we're going to get, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to much lower inflation. You know, I think if we hit 4%, or 5%, I think that's, that's going to be lucky. And again, you know, going from an environment of, um, you know, sort of uh, zero to 1% or 2% max, you know, for, for decades, and then all of a sudden you're in an environment where, you know, inflation is more like going to be, let's call it, you know, three to six, you know, that's a very major adjustment uh, that investors are going to have to um, have to make. Um so I'm definitely not in the deflation or disinflation camp. I'm in the inflation camp. And and actually things could get, uh, you know, um, I mean, inflation could set up, you know, much higher than that. I mean, I haven't even talked about disruptions, uh, you know, supply chains and, you know, all these kind of things. Although, you know, to a certain extent, the, the reopening of China, you know, is uh, is. Um, is going at at least for you know in the short term you know that may may make things a little bit better, uh, but deglobalization you know no matter whether China is open or not then, you know that's that's something you know which is a fact. Um, on the uh, on my target you know twelve times uh, one hundred and eighty five, you know this is this is you know usually I don't I don't look at that but this is a way, you know how you can rationalize, uh, you know the S and P going down you know thirty forty uh, percent. Can I ask a quick follow-up question? Well, I mean, sure. go, yeah, go ahead. Yep. Thanks, thanks. And then, and then I'm just going to step down. I'll step down after that, George. Thanks again for the space. Um, and thank you for your answer, Al. Great answer, great points, and I do agree with all of them. But I think just on a temporary basis, wouldn't you say just a you know a conservative 185, 12 times? We're at what 25, 22 times now. Isn't that just disinflationary? In itself, just on a temporary basis, especially if you're if you're if you're perceiving that this is going to happen going forward, and, and that's it. Thanks, Al, and and George. Um, okay, I'm not sure I understood uh, you know what you meant in terms of the multiple and and uh, disinflation, um, but if you so. Yeah, I'm not sure I understood. I, I think I think Bobby, it gets to sequencing. I mean, yeah, I mean, if we get a if the market were to fall a lot, yeah, that that'd be disinflationary for sure. But um, absent a, a, a crisis or a crash, um, I think Albert's um, Albert's not expecting that. Um, Albert- uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just to, I mean, everything is very uh, circular. You know, all these arguments go around and around. But you know, the one way you get to 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 inflation back to two percent. You know, if is you know it could happen, uh, but that would probably mean, you know, a massive recession. Right. No, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. So, and we'll get to Neely. Hey, good to see you, Neely. Just hang on one second. So, Albert, one other question um, related to that: If the, you know, a lot of conspiracy theorists, if if the Fed, <clears throat> everyone's everyone's everything's all Fed all the time, but if. If we're only going to, um, I'd like to flush out a little bit more of your thoughts along where inflation goes to. Uh, if in fact 
you know, the Fed knows they're thinking they're never going to get to 2%. They're really just, you know, they'll be lucky to get to three or four and they're engaging in open math operations. They're sort of talking the talk. But the reality is that they know they're not going to get there. And as a matter of fact, I was reading something interesting the other day, was making the argument that 3 to 4% inflation is actually good because it's more nominal uh, economic activity, which means more tax revenue, you know, which is good for um, the budget deficit and so on and so forth. In other words, you want to inflate, you want to, uh, inflate away the debt. So um, how would your view, ch- do you think that's plausible? And, you know, um, how would your view change if, in fact, they took the flag down and said, you know what, forget about 2%, we'll settle for 3 or 4 Okay, I, I mean, I think I think that that's uh, that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, I think they, they and, and the thing about you know inflating the inflating away the debt is, uh, um, I mean, there are two ways to 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 pay debt is uh, you know through through uh, war and and uh, and through inflation. So, um, but what would what how would the market react? Um, I don't know. Um, you know, well, the, my, my, my my immediate reaction is that you know twenty two times earnings uh, in a four you know in a four percent environment you know doesn't uh, you know doesn't really work. And then you know one should ask also you know there's something that needs to happen as well. By the way, is a, a normalization of the bond market, and normaliz- normalization of the bond market means you know real rates uh, you know real rates of return. So you know if we if we do settle let's say at four percent inflation, what you know what should be you know the yield on the ten-year. You know, I think, you know, uh, I think over time, you know, the yield, the yield on the ten-year has got to, you know, has got to yield positive returns. You know, that's that's another adjustment that's got to, you know, to 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 take place, uh, which means also, you know, uh, asset liquidation. You know, in terms of uh, in terms of bond market, which is probably not not uh, you know not over, but you know, four percent inflation. I think you know uh, the the ten-year could easily yield. You know, five, six, you know, you know, one, one hundred basis, you know, to two hundred basis real yield, which is, you know, kind of the historical average before the financial crisis. So again, you know, five, six percent ten-year yield. You're never going to get, you know, twenty-two times earnings. I mean, you're already making the case that the market already is not taken on board fully with bonds. Are now we're going to up the ante and say instead of a 10 year at 380 wherever it is you're saying oh my god what happens if it goes to five or six or whatever so mm-hmm. so yeah no the the, the the raise the increase in the risk-free rate impacts all uh, asset prices uh, it makes complete sense one other question before we go to neely um what would that do if if not maybe focusing less on the overall market but how would that impact um sort of by sector or uh, types of stocks you want to own, maybe long duration, short duration, et cetera, et cetera. Could you imagine in that type of world, um, not all stocks would behave, uh, would respond equally that maybe, I don't know, long duration stocks would go down more. Like what, what would you, if we go to that world, how would you expect the sector rotation uh, or factor rotation to uh, shift uh, in that type of scenario? Right. So, so we know that in an inflationary world, you know, um, um, you know, how does that you know, are faring better. So, you know, all the commodity-based type stocks are, you know, should be doing well. That being said, I'm not, right now, I'm not particularly keen on, on, on the oil sector, uh, if only because I think, uh, you know, they've, they've kind, you know, they, 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 they were extremely low. And if you look at the performance of, um, you know, the ETFs, you know, for example, XLE, 
versus or XOP versus uh, you know the oil futures oil prices. Um, you know, very very you know significant part of the uh, you know long term underperformance has been has been worked out. So. Um, you know, I don't see I don't see any major dislocation uh, in in the old, uh, in the old stock, except to say that you know old stocks are way cheaper than the uh, you know than the S and P. But I'm not sure this is necessarily the driving factor in terms of relative performance. Uh, I think what's more more you know more critical is you know whether the old stocks are uh, overshooting or undershooting the um, you know the 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 old price and. They're not overshooting, you know, over the long term. They they overshoot actually, you know, oil stocks are overshooting the oil price over, you know, over the short term. Uh, but over the long term, they've actually worked out uh, a lot of their underperformance. And so, um, you know, one could be bullish on oil. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't translate into being bullish in 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 oil stocks right now. I think um, the same is true actually of uh, of copper. Uh, if anything, I prefer the um, you know I prefer the uh, the commodity, the metal rather than the uh, than the stocks. The only the only area where you do have a dislocation between the underlying commodity and stocks is in the uh, in the precious metals, uh, gold mines and uh, gold and silver mines, um, and uh, you know these uh, they're very very difficult to uh, you know to to analyze and it's very difficult to pick the right time to buy them, but. Uh, you know, when you're looking at hard assets, you know the only area where, um, you know, where you see undervaluation and at the same time, uh, the you know the equity, the stocks under undershooting the underlying commodity. You know, that's in the uh, in the gold space. Right. Um, that's great. Uh, we'll come, uh, sorry, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. No, I was I was going to say, you know, I, I'm in terms of sectors, you know, on the so on the long side, you know, I'm I'm. You know, I'm I'm at a loss in terms of uh, you know buying things outright. Um, you know, I just I just don't think this this is the time to to be long. You know, anything except maybe gold, but uh, gold mines. But um, I don't think it's the time to be long anything. And um, you know, on the short uh, on the short side, um, you know, there are plenty of opportunities, of course. Just to remind everyone, this is not investment advice. Do your own work. Um, so, uh, but no, that's appreciate you appreciate your appreciate that, Billy. All right, let's uh, pivot here just a little bit. Uh, not talking about a Fed pivot, but we have one of the smartest cookies uh, out there uh, on the consumer stocks. Neely, always good to see you and hear from you. How have you been? And uh, spare, share some of your wisdom with us uh, of what you see going on in the world. George, it is so good to be back with you again. Um, I think last time you and I talked, I did give you a heads up, you know, and you're, you're the people who listen to your spaces that this is going to be a wild 2023 to read consumption behavior and boy, the retail sales already get us off to a solid start on that. Like why we care about consumption is because in the United States and I'm myopically and uniquely focused on just the U S economy and the U S consumer, it's, you know, take it or leave it. And we, you know, we drive two thirds of the economy. It's huge, right, for what we do. But month by month, if I had a calendar, I should make a calendar of like how every single month is going to bring like a wild ride. Um, and right now it's all about tax. And this is why I would love to just chat through a little bit more of what we're seeing on the tax side. 
at a high level, we uh, have, you know, tax season, which lasts about 15 weeks in total of when we get to observe data. And it's been my professional experience and observation that, you know, more than rates or prices or stock market even or employment, what really rules consumption behavior during those 15 weeks is perceptions around how well someone does at tax refund season. And the we're two weeks in of the data reads where 18% of, you know, ish of the filings that will be filed. And we're already seeing almost a 50% increase in the number of refunds being issued so far. Uh, and we think that that's going to, probably give some false signals about where the consumer is going to end up landing this year, but it's, you know, more hands in people's pockets, George. Uh, it'll give some real wacky near-term signals in our view. Um, so I just wanted to get up here. I put a tweet in up in the nest. Would love to field any questions you have about it, but uh, it's going to be a wild ride this year. So Neely, um, you were very prescient in highlighting this. Um, and maybe you a few months ago when we had that back, wasn't it two or three months ago? Maybe you could just go a little bit deeper as to why these uh, refunds are running so much higher. Uh, you bet. So the average refund amount, just so that I'm level setting, the average refund amount is actually down fourteen uh, percent. But what we think is influencing that is we have a ton more refunds, as you can see, like fifty percent, you know, higher issued refunds that are probably people who owed a little last year and now they have a little more this year so it's like you know that's gonna lower the average refund amount but there's just more people experiencing refunds and the reason why we believe that's happening in large part is because of um, the way that taxes have been withheld we could observe all throughout last year that tax withholdings were on a tear through the treasury data and it just didn't totally add up as to why that was, either in the number of people employed or factoring in some sort of wage growth. Uh, a lot of people don't focus on the data that we look at kind of on a daily and a weekly basis, which is fine. Um, and so we did some digging and we uncovered an interesting math calculation that there's an old form W-4 and there's a new form W-4 floating out there. And it's impossible to know who and how many are on the new versus the old with any data that's available to us. But we believe that there, because we fired 24 million people during COVID, rehired them, and then you had all this quiet quitting churning of reemployment, people fill out this new W-4 form right when they get hired and they tend to not revisit it. And so we just think that there was more being withheld just mathematically through this new form. Uh, and that created the situation that we're now seeing uh, that more people are just getting refunded so that it's, it's kind of a one-year phenom we think, but it is, it's kind of fascinating to watch it play out. So just to repeat, Neely, you said the average, Actual refund is down 14%, but this is really like a mixed shift. Yeah, is that what that's our, well, it's, a, it's impossible to know exactly, but it, the presupposition is that it's mixed shift because, I mean, if you're issuing 50% more refunds, you know, like it just means that that's you know, the volume of refunds are probably dictating that average refund amount, um, not necessarily, uh, you know, you just have a lot of people who are pro probably. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, that's staggering just to, to point out because I only looked at the detail of your tweet in the nest right now i urge everyone to look at it 
total returns up nine, but total refunds up forty eight. I mean, that that's that's. You ever seen anything like that before? No, no, which is why this is this one year phenom. You know, sometimes George, you know, because you've done this forever too. Sometimes you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into something that you only see once, right, <laughs> in the market, right. and that's what this is right now. Wow, that's 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 really. Uh... Wow. But here's where it's going to get tricky is it looks really good. And we're coming off of a really strong January retail sales, right? Well, why are retail sales so strong in January? A lot of, a lot of uh, possible influences occurring there. But one of them is that the cost of living increases increased by almost 9% among the social security benefit payout people. And, uh, you know, old people, retired people, they like to go out to dinner and I can put a tweet in the nest. I don't know if someone's, needs to mute there um but uh we you know with that with that cost of living increase we saw restaurants up like 24 percent year over year in january like a massive acceleration it was warm weather a bunch of retirees had extra you know payments basically in their pockets we think that that possibly gift card redemptions the fact that it costs way more actually we saw this in cpi to make food at home than it is just to go down the street and grab like dinner uh you know it's narrowing between food at home and food away at home and it's like that premium is all around like you know, washing your dishes or not washing your dishes. So, you know, restaurants was a significant contributor to why uh, retail sales had accelerated. It's like 14% of the overall retail sales. So that was really strong. And then I think February could end up looking strong because of what we're seeing out of these tax refunds. But here's the kicker. When you get to March 1, you're going to have like tons, millions of people who are going to lose some incremental SNAP benefits. This is like food stamps. So the lower income, like the floor is going to fall out underneath them, right? And like maybe some of their tax refunds can kind of carry them for a little bit longer, but March retail sales could actually look massively disappointing off of the January and the February trend because of what's going on with SNAP benefits. Fast forward to April and May, you got 17 million people have basically been getting free uh, healthcare through the CARES Act related to the Medicaid component. That's going away because the pandemic emergency is going away. So then, like, they're going to have to either try to go find a job, pay privately for healthcare. They won't do that. It's way too expensive. I know. I have to pay it. Um, and then, and then you get to June, and that's when we're going to hear from the Supreme Court, and they're going to tell us whether or not you know forgiveness on student loans is going to happen. You know, TLDR, it's not going to happen. And uh, all of a sudden, payment processors are going to start sending out notices for a repayment on student loans. So it's going to be this very schizophrenic start, you know, to consumption capacity to spend. And but it matters to know how to navigate this. And all of these things aren't like massive conjecture. These are factual things that are out in the public domain. Wow. One last thing I'll ask you before we go to Jay. Um, uh, gasoline prices, uh, they've moderated significantly over the last few months. Um, uh, aren't gas prices usually a, a big swing factor, too, in terms of consumers' purchasing power and their uh, propensity to spend? Certainly for the people who are in the kind of sub-75,000 average uh, annual household income versus those who are above. You know, just for context, if you were to look at consumption as um, by category, uh, by income demographic, which we do in our private practice, you know, for boards and CEOs, uh, you, it would represent four, five, six percent if you're in that lower income consumer. But if you're in a higher income consumer demographic, 
it might represent sub 2% of your consumption, right? So it, it, it doesn't land evenly for everyone, but for the lower income consumer, uh, that it, it definitely is a bigger factor for them. Got it. Makes, makes a ton of sense. Okay, let's go to uh, Jay, and then after Jay, we'll go to Dave Nikoski. Jay, welcome. Hi, how are yours. you? I was just going to ask Neely, um, what did that look like in 2001? Uh, what? As far, <laughs> I, no, I, as, far as, as far as the tax <laughs> refunds and um, uh, the increase in refunds, you have I, 50%. You're, go ahead. I, mm-hmm. I could go back and look at our data set. I'm not in front of my computer, but we do actually track all of that. Okay, what does it comp out to, like closest um, in, in the past? Uh, this is, well, let me answer it back this way. It'll be wholly unsatisfactory for you, but let me answer it to you this way. Okay. The last time we saw a massive change, right, mm-hmm. to the W-4 form was actually in 1986. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it's made congressional record. You can actually see the members of Congress debating what happened and what a mess and cause of confusion it created. Uh, and um, like it was that significant of an effect to how we did okay. it. So the W-4 form we think is a cause of confusion and uh, that caused, no, let's, let's fast forward this, right? That caused an overwealth holding dynamic as well, right? Back in 86, uh, I'm not going to draw lines to 87, but, you know, just for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but here's, at a very high level, here's what it does, especially as it relates to debt ceiling conversation. That means our deficit is actually greater than what we think it is right now. Mm-hmm. Right? If we've got to return, you know, incrementally $50 billion more than what we normally return and refund, which is our current estimate, that means we're that much more on thin margins on our deficit. Hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks, Neely. Before we go to Dave, one question for you, Neely. Um, As relates to the housing uh, slowdown, um, you know, some people pointed to a a, a blip of a bounce recently. So a couple of questions. What are you seeing in spending in the housing-related area? A lot of been a lot of conjecture about, you know, uh, DIY, Home Depot, these sorts of things may experience a slowdown. Do you have any perspective on housing-related stuff, Neely? I really don't. Um, I just follow a couple of really smart people about it all. And I would say, you know, I think I'm loosely in that camp of, you know, we've there's a lot of uh, spending power we've created by, um, you know, locking in a lot of loans in the United States uh, at 3%, right, or lower. So, I don't know. I do think that in general, people care about their nest. And um, we do think that babies are coming too. I know it's very contrarian view for another conversation. Uh, And in general, I think people are going to be making investments in their nest. Yeah, you got it. Okay, so let's go to a good mutual friend, another person from Minnesota. You guys come in, in a bunch, don't you? Dave Nikoski. For those of you who don't know Dave, he's a good friend, friend of the room, one of the most astute technicians out there. So, Dave, welcome. What's on your mind, Dave? Hey, George. Great to be back. Good to hear from you and Neely, who's uh, another good friend of mine as well. Um, Neely and I have known each other for many years, just like you, George. So um, thank you for having me in the room. Um, just saw you on and thought I'd pop in. Um, you know, some, some I'm seeing some deterioration in, in 
you know, much of the technology arena. I posted out on my timeline, you know, a couple days ago and discussed it in rooms over the last week that, you know, we're, you know, when, when I see parabolic relative strength downtrends in the safety areas of the market, and they're not joining in whatsoever in the rally. You know, I know, I know there's, you know, every couple of months we get this sector rotation that, you know, drives everyone out and then brings everyone back in. Um, you know, you are getting relative strength uh, stabilization and utility staples and, and healthcare and the XLV. Um, you know, I, I, when I'm pulling up charts of, you know, the two poster childs for momentum are Tesla and NVIDIA. And, you know, if you look at an RSI chart, it does suggest that they're running out of upward momentum. It doesn't mean... They have to break down, but, you know, I'm getting, you know, and we put it in in our work uh, with clients, uh, you know, over the last few weeks that we saw 4165 as kind of a hurdle rate for the S&P. And and I'm not bearish the markets. I'm not bullish. Like I've been saying, it's not a stock market. It's a market of stocks. We've been very, you know, constructive on the consumer, and so it was good to see the consumer numbers come out, um, retail sales. Um, you know, and I've been discussing that, you know, ever since June, you know, the internals of the market are much healthier than people would like to, you know, see. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's a very quirky market. It's not something that we've seen before. Um, you know, if you looked at the RCD versus the XLY or XL, XRT, you know, the, the average retail stock has been doing extremely well. And I continue to say focus on individual names, uh, groups within sectors. Um, we did downgrade energy last week. Um, you know, we, we flipped a couple of times on it. It didn't gain alpha. It didn't lose alpha. But, you know, relative strength is deteriorating in it. You know, I was a big proponent of the service stocks back in October with the OIH breaking the downtrend versus XOP. You know, I'm keeping a close eye on it. Um, you know, the other area that I think could have problems with the inflection that we're seeing in bonds, uh, I guess I was surprised to see that the long bonds or duration actually, you know, from the onset on Friday, you know, started out, uh, you know, with yields moving up. And by the end of the day, it was just the short end that was responding. Um, you know, if, if we do shoot higher on the long side, you know, I'd be more concerned about, you know, uh, high price ticket items, um, financing rates, uh, you know, whether it's from cars to homes. Um, and that would be a greater concern to me technically. Um, three things that I've discussed over the last six months, you know, I want to see small caps outperform large caps. And we've been seeing that to a degree. We just don't have a breakdown or, a, you know, significant alpha. You know, small caps were actually up on the week last week. Um, IWC, which is the micro caps, you know, I want to see them hold in there. Um, they're not breaking down. They're closer to the six-month highs than six-month lows. Um, and, you know, look at yield spreads. You know, I put a chart up on my timeline. Uh, you know, I, I think it was Friday morning. You know, we're getting close to, you know, having that pop out. It's not popping out yet. Um, but, you know, it's something I'm going to keep a close eye on. Um, we're, we're, you know... I mean, basis points away from that inflection. So, you know, I hope to say I'll catch it the day of. You know, I I don't think anyone can prognosticate. Um, And the third thing that I've discussed is, you know, what banks are doing. And, you know, the KRE, I pointed out, you know, a couple months ago that it was right near a major support level, bounced off of it, developed what, you know, looked like a, a 
a bullish flag and pop to the top side of that pattern. So, you know, it's every day is, you know, you have to go through the charts just about every day on the things that you're most concerned about or have worrisome thoughts about. But, you know, again, I, I'm seeing more of a defensive posture building here at this level um, with that reversal and relative strength and, you know, the defensive areas that have just absolutely been pummeled on a, a relative basis. So, you know, I, I think the, the best we can hope for is mark some time here if we're if we're going to stay in a bullish trajectory. Um, my thoughts are, you know, is, and, and I think Cantro is by far the best I've heard on the street. And again, you know, no one, Cantro doesn't try to time the market. He just gives you the big picture. And I do think that housing, you know, will still end up being a problem. Um, you know, I can't point to the time period it is, but, you know, if I'm looking at the XHB, you know, I'm seeing momentum deterioration from that. Um, I pointed out, you know, plenty of times over the last six months, you know, you're hitting relative strength highs. It's not something I'm pounding the table on, but, you know, as a technician, I have to look at it and, and say, yep, I acknowledge it's hitting, you know, new price and relative strength highs. You know, you far outperformed the market if you bought them in April of last year than where you are today. But, you know, so keep a close eye on that. And I, you know, again, not investment advice, but, you know, trying to give you a big picture of what's happening in the market. Appreciate that a lot. Um, if you could just hang right there, Dave. Uh, Billy, yeah. you still there? Uh, a- a- Albert, you there? Yeah, I'm here, yeah. Yeah, so I'm just curious. Uh, you've heard a bunch of stuff from Neely on the consumer and then some of uh, Dave uh, Nikoski's technical prognostications. Um, and you had mentioned earlier your views on various sectors. I'm wondering um, if you have any reaction to any of this or if you want or maybe looking further afield looking outside the u.s you know putting any of this in context uh any thoughts on sectors or looking at countries um any any anything you'd like to uh expound upon uh, albert yeah first of all on the on the uh on the housing uh something very interesting which is that the lumber prices have um, totally collapsed uh, and the you know the the, the sector XHB has been uh, you know has been doing very well, and that's uh, you know that's a major um, disconnect here. Uh, so uh, you know uh, I kind of think that uh, you know housing stocks and X, XHB you know look like like uh, you know great short, but uh, you know on the short side I'm I'm so I'm not so much uh, you know focusing on on tech because you know because it, it did go down a lot. And, uh, you know, I've been looking at uh, some of the stocks which have been uh, some of the stocks, uh, stocks which have been um, uh, rebounding a lot um, in the tech space. Uh, and I've, I've sort of identified, um, you know, NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Device, you know, the, the uh, semiconductor ETF, uh, Microsoft. Um, there was a, an IPO for Mobileye, uh, you know, Intel uh, made an IPO for that. And I mean, the stock has been, do, you know, doing extremely well. But, you know, this is uh, this is a large cap semiconductor stock, which is on, you know, 19 times revenues or something like that. Um, so these are, you know, Apple, you know, is a, is a short. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether you want to put Tesla in the tech or the auto sector. But, you know, that I mean, the stock has gone up basically 100 percent. Uh, from the trough uh, at the beginning of the year until until the peak a few days ago, uh, and you know that's you know massively overvalued. Um, 
in terms of other sectors, uh, I'm shorting. I'm shorting. Um, so some of the big retailers like Costco. Uh, I'm I'm also shorting the you know the retail the retail uh, ETF and the consumer discretionary ETFs, uh, and other stocks which come as being massively overvalued are you know retailers like Burlington, uh, Ross Stores, TGX. I mean these are you know very popular stocks obviously, but they're massively overvalued. Burlington actually collapsed last year. And it had a very significant rally, and I think that's uh, that's a great short. Um, I'm shorting Nike as well. Um, then there are some industrial stocks like Caterpillar, uh, which are trading at crazy valuations uh, in terms of EV sales, but even you know in terms of price earnings ratio and and uh, EV a bit down. I mean, these are things which are sell- selling at uh, you know decades high in terms of uh, in terms of valuations. The same goes for XLI, which is the uh, the uh, Industrial ETF, and then I'm shorting uh, financials: um, Schwab, Blackstone, Morgan Stanley, Mastercard, MSCI, BlackRock. You know, I mean, uh, Goldman. Uh, you know, all these stocks. Um, I mean, these are stocks which you know typically, typically, no matter the valuations, actually get you know get uh, you know decimated in a, in a bear market. Um, so the, you know, they sort of high beta stocks on the downside. Um, so that's what I'm shorting. Uh, that's what I'm shorting in the U.S. So you see, so again, you're just elaborating on what you said earlier. You you don't have much you want to buy, but you've got a lot of things you don't like uh, on the uh, on the short side. Um, yeah. So then, yeah. yeah, and then looking abroad, uh, my view is, uh, you know, for better or worse, my view is tainted by this uh, conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, you know, uh, and you know, I I, st- I basically continue to think that Europe is completely screwed. Uh, by this situation and you know i don't see any 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 you know any way that this uh, situation is going to get better um and um you know frankly i don't know who would want to invest you know i, I don't know who would want to invest in you know poland czech republic romania uh you know all these countries that are bordering uh, poland uh, you know that are bordering ukraine and 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 by you know by uh, extension, I, I don't I, you know I don't see why you would want to invest in uh, you know in Europe. Um, so actually, you, you look at the um, um, you know uh, the euro stocks in 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 um, in local currency in euro. It's uh, it's pretty much at the all time high, uh, and I think that's uh, you know I'm certainly not buying that. Uh, and by the way, you know on valuation you know on valuation. Uh, grounds, uh, you know, buying non-U.S. stock is is uh, is pretty much the consensus view, um, and on that, you know, uh, I, I will differ on that. Uh, no matter the no matter the valuation, I just think that the uh, geopolitical risks are just you know so uh, incredibly high uh, that uh, you know that I think you know one one's got to think beyond you know uh, you know price earnings ratio or you know relative relative performance. Um, and the same goes to Asia. Um, you know, I, I want to be as far away, you know, from China as possible. Um, I think the reopening of China is just, you know, some kind of a short-term, uh, you know, short-term event, which, you know, obviously, and actually the markets have, you know, the, the Chinese market and Chinese tech has gone through the roof uh, between November and January. Uh, so I think that's probably, you know, that's probably already, you know, played. Uh, and uh, and same thing. I mean, China has got uh, you know uh, the power of uh, you know of, of wrecking you know economies uh, in the region. So uh, actually, I, you know, I kind of think that uh, you know I'm bullish on the dollar, 
and I'm bullish. And, and I guess, you know, I mean, I'm not, I was going to say I'm bullish on the U.S. I'm not bullish on the U.S. at all. But, uh, you know, long term, um, I, you know, I kind of think that, um, uh, you know, the, the U.S. is the only, um, you know, the only place to be in a way. And, you know, markets tend to discount things way in advance. And, and you know, one you know, one could rationalize why, you know, European markets uh, or, you know, uh, non-U.S. markets have been so cheap relative to the U.S. We got the answer now is that the, uh, you know, the, the geopolitical risks are, you know, um, are so big outside of the U.S. Uh, that, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, the valuations outside of the U.S. had to be, you know, much lower than the U.S. So it's a little bit philosophical. Uh, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, keep in mind, I'm in, uh, in Europe, I'm in Geneva, uh, actually, which is a small paradise within Europe. But I, 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 you know, I kind of, you know, to me, I kind of disregard, you know, completely uh, Europe and, and Asia. Uh, so I'm mainly, you know, I would say interested in the U.S., although not right now. And, and then Latin America, which actually, you know, is a, is a great beneficiary of, uh, of inflation. And, and, you know, the stock markets, whether it's in Brazil or, or not Mexico, but, um, you know, uh, Brazil, Colombia, um, which are the two main markets in, in Latin America, and Chile are, uh, are historically incredibly cheap. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, where I, uh, that's the only place where I would consider to be long, actually. It's Latin America as an inflation hedge. Hey, Billy, um, we're going to go to Haystack in a minute. But before that, uh, one question for you on... Um the European situation, as the saying goes, opinions are like noses. Everyone has one. Actually, it's a cruder version of that. But, <laughs> but, but you're just two cents into the for what's worth category because you are in Geneva, closer to the pro- source of the problem than um, than we are. What's your own perspective on the Ukrainian situation? And do you think we're in for a protracted, you know, long drawn out affair? What's your view about the whole Ukrainian situation? Well, I mean, the view is that, um, you know, my view is that if, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I guess, it, you know, it can't, it, you know, it cannot get too good for the Ukrainian, because I think if it does get too good for the Ukrainians, the Russians are going to get even more crazy. So and that's why I think, you know, the um, and that's that may be one of the reasons why, you know, the U.S. and Europe and uh, European allies are, are uh, you know, not giving everything, you know, everything on time. And, and everything that Ukraine needs, because they 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 may not want Ukraine to, uh, you know, to to sort of beat up the Rus- the Russians t- too much. They just you know give enough so that they, uh, you know, that they stay in the conflict. They inflict as as many casualties as they can, and you know, to the Russians. Um, so, you know, the thing is, you know, I don't see how that thing resolves itself, uh, except you know, except some some you know a coup in Russia. Uh, and obviously that would be a, a game changer, but, uh, you know, this is not happening. Uh, you know, I mean, you cannot, you, you, you know, you cannot count on that. So the point is, the better it gets for Ukraine, the worse it is, uh, because the, the, the more crazy, you know, Ru- Russia, um, you know, Russia, Russia, it, it is true that Russia cannot lose this thing. I mean, they won't let it happen. So, you know, if you if you notice every time there is some kind of good news on the Ukrainian front, you know, like re- Ukraine, you know, going to receive tanks or Ukraine is going to receive that or Ukraine, you know, has, has taken this uh, city or so on. You know, the next day, you know, Ukraine is uh, carpet bombed, you know, by Russia, uh, you know, like crazy. So, 
you know, uh, imagine that they make, you know, great progress somewhere. You know, the Russians, you know, haven't finished yet, you know, being, you know, being, uh, you know, crazy. I mean, they haven't used chemical weapons yet. They haven't, you know, and obviously they haven't used nukes yet. But everything is on the table, I think, you know, to get worse. So, 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 so you think we're, we're just looking at a standoff here? There's no, there's no exit ramp in sight. Well, there's no, you know, and and the, the, there's there's no. I mean, obviously, when you negotiate, you know, you 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 put your maximum maximum uh, you know, maximum demand on the table, and and basically, Ukraine says, you know, they want everything back, and Russia says they're not giving anything back. Um, but then, the thing is, you know, by by uh, the Russian constitution. Uh, you know, Russia is, is uh, you know, cannot give back territory that that's, you know, that it has, I mean, that it considers, uh, um, you know, um, is territory. So all these territories that have been annexed, you know, it's it's going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible for Russia to, to give back in a ne- negotiation. So, you know, I don't see, I really don't see any end. You know, and certainly I don't see any any positive, you know, positive end to that conflict, um, you know, at least, you know, in the, I mean, in the short term. And I don't even know what the short term is. But uh, and, and, and by the way, you know, and if Russia wins this thing, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, absolutely catastrophic. Um, so so this is the thing. If Russia wins, it's catastrophic. If if you and Ukraine, you know, can't win too much otherwise i don't know there, there, there will be some, a nuke you know attack or something uh you know something really you know really really nasty um so you know i think i think um you know when you look at markets to come back to the markets you know it kind of looks like at the beginning you know in february last year like exactly a year ago when when russia you know started you know invaded ukraine uh, or just before you know you are you are at a point i think in ukraine you know, everybody's expecting either Russia to, to, to start a, a huge offensive or Ukraine to start its own offensive. And so I think the conflict is going to, you know, come back to, you know, right now, like it's in the background. It's been going on for a year. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not uh, you know, uh, uh, the main news, um, you know, in, in, in the news every day. Uh, but I think it's you know in the next in the next few weeks it's going to come back to the forefront one way or another either because Russia is uh, you know is making significant advances or because you know Ukraine is making you know a, a big counteroffensive and 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 from there as I said you know Russia could uh, could get you know nastier and nastier uh, so you know we've got markets which are kind of elevated and I think you know we've got this conflict which you know which can you know continue to um, you know to to bring. Uh, you know, significant risk, uh, you know, to, to the investment, um, you know, to the investment uh, scene. Thanks, Billy. Okay, let's go now to uh, Haystack. Uh, Haystack, please unmute yourself. You have a question for Billy or for Albert or a comment? For yeah, yeah. Thanks, George. I appreciate it. I've been listening to you for a while and really appreciate it. I, I wanted to touch on housing myself a bit, and I was glad that uh, Dave and Billy both touched on it briefly. I've been looking at like the home builders and housing in general over the last few months. And it's just been a mystery the the price action, right? With, I mean, yes, rates did come down a bit, um, which, you know, to an extent makes sense, but it's like, you know, it, it's been so annoyingly persistent and I've been looking at it as a great short idea and it seems to be rolling over here a bit. Um, so I just like, anytime something seems really obvious, right? Like, 
you know, shorting XHB or shorting the builders now, especially like a Lennar that has a lot of exposure in like the West Coast and, you know, like Austin and Texas, South, Southeast, where there's been a huge amount of inventory. There's dumping a ton of inventory um, still into those areas. So, you know, I'm looking at that area as, as one of the more interesting risk reward sort of short ideas, not like from a short term put perspective, more like, you know, out to September, maybe even January, but at some point something has to give. So I just kind of wanted to present that and, and see if anyone has sort of an interesting kind of, um, I don't know, challenge to that, right? That like this might make sense and that these these guys can actually continue to run. So that was one point, And I was going to see if anyone anyone has any perspective on that. And the other thing I was going to say is I really like insurance here, you know, very defensive, um, especially auto insurance. Progressive is making new all time highs. Um, they're going to have a great year, um, you know, a massive investment book. And with rates going up, their investment income is is really surging. So, uh, you know, I, I really like the name and I, I like the space. So I want to see if anyone has any any views on that as well. Albert, you have a comment or Dave, any thoughts on the charts on the, on the builders? Uh, you know, on the builders, I don't have, uh, you know, uh, any, any granular, uh, you know, view beyond, you know, beyond what I've said before on, on progressive uh, insurance. Actually, this is a stock. I mean, it's a momentum stock, which has gone from, uh, you know, it's gone up like seven times in the last, uh, in the last uh, seven, eight years. Um, I find the stock to be, you know, massively uh, overvalued actually. Yeah, you know, there's a real chance that they're going to make about eight dollars in in EPS this year. Which I mean, you know, I get your point, but you know, if you look at their historical valuation, you know, they've been able to demand a you know twenty two, twenty three type of valuation in the market. So you know, I don't know. I do see the momentum point, but I also see that they've you know companies like that have have outperformed during like downturns historically speaking so you know it, it. yeah well you know it's it's again it's a market so uh, you know certainly it's one of the most popular stock in the in the sector uh, i actually like one of the least popular stock in the sector which is a company called Mer- mercury general it is a, it is an auto insurer and it's uh, it's in california which has been uh, uh, which has been um, a tough, uh, you know, a tough place to compete because of uh, of local regulation. Um, but the interesting thing about the stock is one, you know, the share price is very low and valuations are very low. But the, the most interesting thing is the chairman of that company, the founder, is a guy called George uh, uh, Joseph, and he's 101 years old. He's the largest shareholder, uh, and I think he's going to die uh, one of these days. <laughs> and when that happens, um, I think the company will be in play, uh, and uh, you know the stock is trading around book value when you know when most of the other stocks are sell- trading at uh, you know two and three times, two and three times that. So you know this is this is a, another idea in you know in in the sector that you just mentioned, which you know which it's a kind of a special situation, but I think it's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out. I appreciate that. And I was going to see, I was more interested in, in perspectives on the housing side. Uh, Dave, I think you were going to say something um, in terms of like the technical picture and, and what your thoughts are there. So. 
Yeah, I mean, they're starting to show signs of running out of upward momentum. I know I saw the permit numbers and realized rates were going down up until about two weeks ago. You know, permit numbers had a little bump up, but, you know, if, if this is anything like previous housing cycles and we do get, you know, the long bonds to move up, um, you know, Much appreciated. Thanks for the question, Haystack. All right. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, that's excellent. So um, we've been going at this for an hour and 40 minutes. I think it's um, a good day's work. It's uh, after all holiday weekend, so people should uh, get a life, go on and do something else. So I want to thank Albert. This has been great. Um, I hope. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, this has been terrific. Uh, there'll be a replay of this, of course, available on Twitter and the usual places. YouTube, Spotify, et cetera. Dave, always great to hear from me. I sent you a DM, so let's have a combo later. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for participating. Uh, this is wonderful. Um, enjoy this holiday weekend, and um, we'll have a space again later this week. Take care, thank everyone. You, Goodbye. Appreciate Take it. Care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a good Goodbye, day. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.